This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and turn with me to Psalm 129. Psalm 129, as we continue walking straight through these Psalms of Ascents. Uh, these are the songs that the people of God sing as they made their journey from their homes up to Jerusalem to meet with God, to be in his presence. Uh, they are like a playlist for the people of God as they take their journey. For us, uh, as those who are also journeying with Jesus Christ day by day into his presence, they have become for us our songbook to teach us and instruct us on how to walk with the Lord. And week after week, God continues to give us new and fresh instruction, and I'm so thankful uh, for these psalms. I've been reading over the last couple of weeks the book of Acts, and I just it fills me with so much hope and encouragement. I was telling somebody uh, last week that if Genesis 1 and 2 is life as it was meant to be, Acts 1 and 2 is the church as it was meant to be. And if you love the church of Jesus Christ, you just read the book of Acts, and you, just, uh, you can't help but to say, God, may that happen in our church. That's what we want to see, just that kind of freshness and that power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the people coming to Christ and the church is planted and the missionaries sent, just everything about it. It's just, if you love the church, you read that and say, oh, God, for your glory, for your name, may it happen here. And there's this great little story in Acts chapter 5 where the apostles are preaching. It says they're in Solomon's portico, which is actually an important reminder that although they were meeting in homes and in small groups, they also had large gatherings like this one. A part of the normal practice of the early church was to have large gatherings. And while they were there, there was miracles and there were signs and there was wonders and people were being healed and the gospel was being preached and thousands were being saved and God was just moving. His presence was resting upon that place. The power of God was visible there. And everyone in the church was doing great, but the religious leaders, the high priest and his council were furious. They were furious because they were losing their power. They had created a system which was a system of religion and which most systems of religion in this way tend to do. It was, it was really a way to control people and to make them live with fear. And they were losing the system. Jesus came to dismantle that system, replace it with a personal relationship with him. And they were afraid that they were losing all of their power. And so they sent some military forces to go and to get the apostles and to bring them in by force and to put them into prison. That's exactly what they did. While they were in the prison, the high priest gathered with the council. They had a little meeting and said, okay, what are we going to do? We've got to put a stop to this. They had already warned them not to preach anymore. They ignored that warning. So now they said, okay, we've got to have a plan. What are we going to do? So they came together, got a little plan together. And then they said, okay, go get the apostles, bring them in. Let's talk to them. They went to get him, and they weren't there. They weren't there because an angel had come and opened the prison doors, and they walked right out. And, of course, instead of going home and hiding, because that's what you would do if you knew everyone was looking for you, they went exactly back where they were arrested, and they were right there in the temple continuing to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, which I just love that. I love that they got out of prison and went straight back to preach. 
So they went to arrest him again. <laughs> and they arrested him again. And finally they brought them into the council in front of the high priest. And here's what it says happens in that moment. It says, when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Meaning, we think you're out there blaming us for Jesus' death. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, I love this, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. I love that. They say, we're afraid you're out there telling people we killed Jesus. To which Peter said, we're out there telling people you killed Jesus. That's exactly what they were doing. And he said, and I know you've strictly charged us to stop, but whether it's right or wrong, we're obeying God and not you. And look what happens next. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men, the apostles, outside for a little while. And he said to them, the rest of the council, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Phidias rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and he drew away some people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Now he was right. I mean, just think about in our generation, uh, how many false prophets have risen up? How many people claiming to be a Messiah and had a little gathering of people? And then it just seems like every generation has a few of those. And although they get a few people gathered and oftentimes harm a few people, the reality is we can't even recount their names from 20 years ago. And the previous generation had them and we can't recount those names. We don't remember them. They rise up, they gather a few people, and then it just dies off. But what Gamaliel said was true. If this is from God, we can't stop it. If this is from God, our attempts to stop it are going to be fighting against God. And he was right. It was of God. And the reality is, here we are about 2,000 years later, and the church not only still stands, the church thrives. And the largest religion in the world is Christianity. And in all of the places in which they've tried to stop the advance of Christianity, the more they've tried to stop, the more that it's thrived. To such an extent that they estimate that in China, there are 100 million Christians. In a country that has said we are not going to allow for the spread of Christianity, there are 100 million Christians. There are 90 million Bibles that we presented this year. Hundreds of people groups for the very first time will be reached like the Naba people we're reaching, like the people of Peru we're reaching. Missionaries are going out. And although communism has tried to stop the church and Islam has tried to stop the church and atheism has tried to stop the church, the reality is the church will not only survive, the church will thrive because God has ordained it so. Can't stop it because 
It is of God. But it will not always feel that way. There will be times in our lives, time in our nation, time in the church, through different seasons in which it will feel as if we're losing. There will be times in which we wonder if God has forgotten us. There will be times in which it feels like we are losing more people than we are gaining people. And there will be seasons, there always have been, in which we will wonder if we will win and survive. And that's the reason Psalm 129 is here. Psalm 129 is here to give us the confidence we need to remind us that even in the midst of our affliction, even in the midst of suffering, that God has ordained that the church will not only survive, the church will thrive and continue and will stand. And we need that kind of confidence to be reminded that even in the midst of all the suffering and all the trouble and all the opposition, the church will remain. So let's read Psalm 129. If you're there, say amen. It says this. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, the me is Israel. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binders of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is a corporate psalm, which means it's not ultimately about you. It's about us. Now this matters. It's about you in as much as you have trusted Jesus Christ and you are following Jesus Christ. You are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have acknowledged your sin. You have asked Jesus to save you through his death on the cross. You have received new life through his resurrection. In that way, you are a member of the people of God. But this is a sermon about the significance of the people of God. And everything in our mind wants to make every text just about us. But this is an important reminder that our significance is not simply found in the fact that we have a personal relationship with God, but in having that relationship, we have been joined together with a church. And so it is, Psalm 129 is about Israel, the people of God, and God is not done with Israel. He has plans for Israel. But 1 Peter chapter 2 and many other texts tell us that the chosen people of God right now, the royal priesthood right now, is the church of Jesus Christ. Everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ, every born again, blood bought believer in Jesus is a part of the people of God called the church. And so Psalm 129 is about the history of God's people. It is about the church of Jesus Christ. And what it says to us is this, is through many troubles, God will ensure that his people persevere. That's Psalm 129. Through many troubles, through many troubles, through many trials, through all kinds of persecution, through difficulties and ups and downs, God has ordained that his church will persevere and make it faithfully until the end. And both sides of that statement are important. And this psalm is a psalm of confidence. It exists 
to not only remind us of the trouble, but to remind us of the victory, to stir up inside of us an optimistic, hopeful attitude to what Jesus Christ is doing, not only in this place, but around the world. This text exists to keep us filled with the courage of the apostles to say, listen, this is a movement of the living God and nothing you do can stop us. It gives us some important reminders for our life and our generation to give us confidence. The first one is this. I encourage you to write this down. Psalm 129 tells us God's people will be afflicted. God's people, the church, will be afflicted. And so this psalm recounts the trouble of of God's people. I think it's funny when you think about the psalm and you read it, a couple of them are like this, and you think about the fact that these are songs that they sing. What a depressing song. Greatly have they afflicted us from our youth. Let's say it again. Greatly have they afflicted us from our youth. That's the chorus. Uh, Ryan's out of town this morning, but, but I thought this would be a great one to put to music, and we just sing it together, right? And then you leave and think, man, that place is depressing. I mean, they're just recounting how bad life has been, and I love a good sad song, but boy, there's just some sadness here. Look what it says. It says, from my youth, it says that twice. Certainly they're referring to the beginning of the journey of the people of God. It began in Genesis 12 when God called Abraham out and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. That is the nation of Israel. But really when you first begin to see them gathered and God is moving, they are in Egypt. That's, you could say, the years of Israel's youth. It was early in their life as believers. If you look at the the whole context of how long these people have existed, the people of God from Genesis 12, well, they're just in their infancy there. They were in their youth. And they look back, and even in their youth, how they were persecuted and afflicted, specifically in, in Egypt. Exodus 1 tells us a little bit about that. Here's what it says. It says, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This is the people of God in Egypt. Taskmasters afflicting them, heavy burdens, ruthlessly made them work as slaves, bitter with hard service, ruthlessly made them work. That's the people of God. It's so interesting, we have a hard time when we read the Bible because we can read Exodus chapter one in like, you know, five or seven minutes and then we can read the whole book of Exodus in maybe an hour and we fail to realize that that season of affliction, that season of suffering was, listen, 430 years long. That's generations that were afflicted, generations that were enslaved, generations that forced the hard labor Just put that in perspective, tomorrow is our nation's 246th birthday. Almost 200 years more than that, the people lived in constant affliction and constant suffering. This is a long time. This is a lot of generations. And so they say, even from our youth, this was happening. And it says that it was great. Look at that twice. Greatly have they afflicted. Greatly have they afflicted. But that word greatly doesn't really refer to to the significance or the hardship of the suffering as much as the frequency. That this has happened many times to us. This This is like a little bit of a pattern from our youth. So it's saying from our youth till now, we just have this pattern of affliction. And it's true. First, there was Egypt and the difficulty of that suffering. And 
Then there was Babylon and the difficulty of that suffering. And the Assyrians came and exiled the people and took them for a while. And then the Romans came and controlled the people of God. And so they're just looking back on our journey and say, our journey is filled with a lot of affliction. Our journey is filled with a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of slavery and a lot of moments in which we wondered whether we would ever make it. And some of that has been extremely brutal and painful. Look at this little word picture in verse three. The plowers plowed up on my back and they made long their furrows. So think about this with me. If you were to think about the kind of handheld plow that would be used in those days, it would, it would be some type of metal or wood plow and it would have two handles on it and it would come together and right in the middle would be three or four blades that were kind of like hooks. They were curved. And the reason is, is because they existed when it was pushed for that to turn and it would go and pull up the dirt and dig and pull it up. And the reason is they needed to make furrows. Furrows are those lines that you would make in order to plant seeds. So they would push this plow and it would till up the ground these long lines of furrows would be made and they put the seed and cover it up. What he said is this, what happened to us is it's as if they put the plows over our backs and made furrows through our backs. Think about how brutal that picture is. It was almost like they took their plow with the blades on the end and they kept running it over us back and forth. Can you imagine the pain of this? So much so that the furrows were across our back. And I think some of that is literal, that some of their literal experience in Egypt and some of their other captivity. But more than that, it's just symbolic. It's like a metaphor of the life of the people of God. Over and over, they have been run over. Over and over, they have been pushed down. They have been abused. They have been hurt. They have been afflicted. He says it is like they have made furrows on our back. They continue to just step over us and abuse us says, this is often the story of God's people. God's people are often run over. They're often knocked down. They're often afflicted. They're often rejected. Jesus promised that this was going to be so. This is not a surprise to us. And the reason this is the case is because Matthew 16, 18 says that all the resources of hell exist to take down the church. Now, Gamaliel was wise enough to know if God is in this, we can't defeat it. The enemy knows God is in it, but he's still attempting to defeat it. And he's using every resource he has to take down the church. However he can do it, he is existing to take down the church. This is why Ephesians 6 is so important in our journey with Jesus, because our ultimate battle is not against flesh and blood. Our ultimate battle is not against politicians. It's not against nations. It's not against governments. It's not those who persecute us. The ultimate persecution is coming from the heavenly places in which the enemies are seeking to take us down. That is the battle we fight, and that's the reason we fight it most of all through the battle of prayer and worship and praise. Why? Because the battle that must be won is a spiritual battle. Our enemy is not flesh and blood, but yet that enemy is constantly attempting to try to take down the church. There is a cosmic battle that is going on. I think we forget sometimes just how privileged we are to be able to live in a nation that has generally been kind to us as believers. You know, I, I think we think a lot about all the persecution that we experience and the way in which everyone seems to be against us. Can I just put that in perspective? We have lived in a nation that has generally been kind to us. 
And even if they are opposed to us in so many different ways, we can still walk out of here right now and talk up to anybody we want to about Jesus Christ. We can knock on any door in most neighborhoods and we can say, we came to tell you about Jesus Christ. We can declare Jesus Christ. We can wear a shirt that says Jesus loves you. We can put a sticker on our car that says, Mark, if you love Jesus. We, we, we have the ability to just talk about the Lord. I think about my, my favorite part of American history is, is long before our nation was founded, the Puritans stayed in England in order to purify the English church, but the pilgrims left England and made the pilgrimage to this new land in hopes that here they might find religious liberty. And listen, here we are 400 years later still being able to do what we're doing this morning. That is a remarkable thing. An overwhelmingly good gift of God. And so here we are sending out missionaries, taking them to difficult places to present the gospel. Why? Because we can. Listen to this. Most of the Christians in the world do not experience that. Most of the Christians in the world do not have that same experience. Most of the Christians in the world read Psalm 129 and go, that's exactly how it is for us. We feel the furrows on our back. We've been physically, emotionally beaten and hurt. The reality is there are 360 million Christians in America that are being persecuted today. Listen, 312 million of them are in the 50 most persecuted countries in the world. The top 50 countries, these ones that we watch and we see the persecution that is happening, over 300 million live in there, which means they are having their property taken, they are suffering physically, they're being thrown in prison, their children, their families, their wives are being killed, their churches are being born. This is the affliction of most of the believers in the world. Do we face some affliction? Yes. But the history of God's people shows generation after generation in most places around the world significant, serious, and often brutal affliction of God's people. God's people will be afflicted. But there's more to Psalm 129. The second reminder is this, not only will God's people be afflicted, God's people, here it is, will be victorious. God's people will be victorious. And so they, here they are singing this song. And from the first couple of verses, we think, why in the world would you sing this song? And the reason they're singing this song is because they're not reminding themselves of the affliction, although that's important. It's important to be reminded that what we experience is not unusual and it's typical and normal as long as we exist in a broken world for there to be affliction. But they're really singing this song to remind them of the fact that in the midst of all the affliction, the affliction has never gotten the victory. That's what they're singing. They're reminded amidst their own affliction that they need to put their affliction in, in perspective. They need to see their personal affliction in a part of the bigger scheme of all that God is doing in this world. They're singing it because of what it says at the end of verse two. Look at that. It says, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And look at this, this next phrase I have underlined and circled an arrow beside it. Yet they have not prevailed against me. So have they afflicted? Yes. Have they hurt us? Yes. Have they tried to confine us? Yes. Have they thrown us into prison? Yes. Have they made laws against us? Yes. But they have not yet prevailed over me. It means they have not overcome us. They have not overpowered us. They have not gained the victory. They have tried since our youth over and over and over. Nation after nation has tried, but they have never been able to stop the church of Jesus Christ. 
I think about this, I, I think about Paul's own experience, which he records in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul, knowing the suffering of God's people, having experienced over and over, just again, reading through the book of Acts, seeing the times in which Paul was beaten and stoned and thrown out of town. And you know what he does? He gets back up and he goes back in. So here's how he says it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we have this treasure, the gospel in jars of clay, which means the gospel is strong, the vessel is not. In order to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. What's the secret of the success of Paul's ministry? Not Paul, he's a broken vessel. It's what is inside of Paul, the gospel. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What he's saying is, yes, all of this affliction has come upon us and it's been real and it's been hard and it's been painful. But here's what he's saying. Every time one of us die, it gets more life in the church. Every time I suffer and every time I'm experiencing the suffering and the pain of the death of Jesus, when we join with him in his suffering, what happens? Well, it seems, Paul says, that every time I do that, you experience more life. And so your attempt to kill me is really producing more life inside of you. The futility of trying to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. One of our earliest Christian historians, Tertullian, just living just about 100 years after Christ and, and seeing the persecution of the early church, he says this, listen. We are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill us, the more we are, because the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. So here's Stephen who was killed for his faith, and it's because Stephen, the first martyr of the early church, was killed that everyone ran, but in running, they dispersed and took the gospel to more places. This is why we can't be so individualistic, because if all Stephen cared about was himself, then he would have missed the glory of what God was doing in his death. Did he die? Yes, but through his death, the church grew and thrived. So it is often God is using our pain and our affliction to do a greater thing in the church at large. I mean, think about the story of the people of God in Egypt again. You remember, they were growing too much, they're having too many babies, and so they put harder labor upon them, and they kept growing. And then they put harder labor on them, and they kept growing. And then they decided they would kill every baby boy, and you know what happened? They kept growing, and it's simply a reminder that no matter what you try to do to the church of Jesus Christ, it will grow and thrive and persevere until the end. And it doesn't matter how large your government is and how much power they have, they do not have the ability to stop the church of Jesus Christ. That was the story in the book of Exodus. It's the story today in Prince Avenue Baptist Church. That God has ensured the victory of the church. And listen, please understand this. We do not survive because of our wisdom. We do not survive because of our church growth strategies. We do not survive because of our political power and our might and all the resources and money we have. We will always, the church will always be David versus Goliath. Always. Every nation will be bigger. 
Listen, there will always be people and always bigger things that can take away our freedom and all of that can happen. We will always be David versus Goliath, but the history of God's people is we do not survive because of our power. We survive because God has ordained it to be so. We survive because as Acts 5 says, this is a movement of God and no political power can take us down. And in the nations which see more oppression politically, those are the nations which are seeing more growth of Christianity. Because the Lord is simply saying, you can't stop the church. Because the church will be afflicted, but the church will be victorious. And it's because he's faithful. It's because he is the one, verse four, who cuts the cord of the wicked. It's because he's righteous, verse four. Our legacy is this, not that we are great and not that we have resources and not that we have power. Our legacy is that our God is great. He keeps his promises. He ensures our victory. And in the same way he won, we too will win. That's our legacy. We are the people of God and God's church will be victorious. There's one last thing I want you to see. God's people will be afflicted. God's people will be victorious. But the last one is this, God's enemies will be forgotten. (laughs) God's enemies will be forgotten. Verses five through eight look like a prayer, but the way it's written in the Hebrew, it's really not a prayer. It's more a declaration. It's more of a declaration that all those who hate Zion, all those who hate the people of God, will be put to shame and turned backwards just like Goliath and the Philistines. They will be put to shame. Their tail will be between their legs and at some point they will turn around and they will leave because they will realize they cannot defeat the unstoppable force of the church of Jesus Christ. Look what it says in verse seven. It says, uh, in verse six, it says, let them be like grass on the housetop, which withers before it grows up. This refers to the housetops during this day were made of soil. And so seeds kind of would blow in the wind and they'd land on the soil and some rain would come and they'd begin to sprout just a little bit, but they wouldn't ultimately grow because the roots could not get deep and they would just wither away. And you know what the psalmist is saying? You know what's gonna happen with the wicked? They're gonna be put to shame. They're gonna be defeated. And they're simply going to wither away. Because you know what? If you want to know about the great, powerful nation of Egypt, you know what you have to do? You have to go read the history books. And if you want to read about the big, powerful Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Roman Empire, you have to go to the history books because they no longer exist. But if you want to hear about the power of the church of Jesus Christ, you just show up here some Sunday morning. You just see us as we go to Peru. You see us as we go to the Naba people. That's where, because this still stands and everyone else is forgotten. And all of those generations of people who have oppressed the church and all of those who have put affliction upon the church, they are gone and they are forgotten. But the church of Jesus Christ all around the world is not only standing, it is growing and thriving and God's kingdom is advancing for his glory. This gives me so much hope and encouragement as being a part of a church that God wants to do so much more with us. God has ensured our victory. God is saying to us, go for more, pray for more, attempt more, because there is no power of hell or scheme of man that can stop the church of Jesus Christ filled filled with the spirit of Jesus. Nothing can stop it. Because this this is the history of Israel. And this is the history of the church. You know what else? This is the story of Jesus. They afflicted him, they beat him, 
They captured him. They killed him. They put him in a grave and they put guards over the grave. And yet he came out (laughs) because no political power could keep him in. Because he rose victorious. And in the same way, see the pattern of the life of Jesus. We see the pattern of the church. We are often afflicted. We are often beaten, but we're always victorious because no political power can stop the church of Christ. It's such an important Psalm for us. I feel like where we are in our story as a church, we need this kind of confidence. We need Psalm 129 flowing through our veins. We need to know that God has called us to step in to this attitude to feel this way about ourselves and about the church and be excited about what God is doing among us and have a greater vision of what God wants to do. The truth is, this is, this is supposed to change us. Let me just tell you a few ways in which it calls us into action. First, it calls us to be hopeful. It calls us to be hopeful. Listen, don't act discouraged or defeated or pessimistic. We might lose some battles, but we're going to win the war. And Romans 8 has said we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. And let me just tell you something. I mean this deeply from my heart. I am so tired of a fatalistic, pessimistic view of Christianity. Like we're not going to win. They're going to to take us down. No nation yet has stopped us. If I get one more email about the end of Christianity, I, I can't take it anymore. I'm sick of it. We're not going to lose. We're not going to lose. We're going to win. And we stand up for what is right. And we get involved in politics. And we vote right. We do all of that. But our hope is not in that. Because if all of that goes the wrong direction, we will still grow. And we will still thrive. And the kingdom of God will still advance. So be hopeful. Don't look down. Look up. Be encouraged. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has guaranteed our victory. Second, be courageous. Act like God is on our side. Act like the resurrection power of Jesus that existed in Acts 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 is still resting upon the church today. Share the gospel. Speak the truth. Let's take the gospel to the hard places because Matthew 28 says that wherever we go, God is going to go with us. Listen, don't be afraid. Stand up with courage. With courage, Let's grow the church. Let's ask God for more people. Let's invite more people to church. We are the people of God and we will succeed as we continue to seek to be filled with the spirit of God, moving in a God honoring Christ exalting way. Be hopeful, be courageous. And here's the last one, be faithful. This is a corporate Psalm. It's about we as the people of God. Listen, your significance in this story is found in your personal relationship with God and your union with a local body of believers. God uses the church. Because you on your own have one or two little gifts and those gifts find their place and find their significance in the context of a church of Jesus Christ. The church is the body of Jesus Christ. The church brings the gifts together and exalts Christ. Ephesians 3 makes it very clear. God wants to exalt himself through the church. God wants to do great things through the church. So be active and be passionate, be engaged, sacrifice for the sake of the local church because our, gener- our faithfulness in this generation matters. Why? Because God's continuing his story. God's continuing the story. How is he continuing? Through faithful local churches who are hopeful and courageous and faithful. Let me end with this quote. As I think about the significance of our generation being faithful, 
and what that matters for the next generation. In 1888, Charles Spurgeon said this, listen carefully. It is today as it was in the reformers days. Decision is needed. Here is the day for the man, but where's the man for the day? We who have had the gospel passed to us by martyrs' hands dare not trifle with it, nor sit by and hear it denied by traitors who pretend to love it, but inwardly abhor every word of it. Look you, there are ages yet to come. If the Lord does not speedily appear, there will come another generation and another, and all these generations will be tainted and injured if we are not faithful to God and his truth today. We have come to a turning point in the road. If we turn to the right, mayhap our children and children's children will go that way. But if we turn to the left, generations yet unborn will curse our names for having been unfaithful to God and to his word. So as those who are here today in a long line of God's people, we are hopeful, we are courageous, and we are faithful because we exist to glorify Jesus Christ by seeing the church of Jesus Christ thrive. That's why we do what we do. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.